It's Raji. You're listening to our Sunday Show podcast. I talked housing prices with a Canada research chair who had some pretty specific recommendations on how to get out of our unaffordability mess. And as Alberta moves to lift the mask mandate in classrooms, we find out if the same should happen in BC schools too. And the city of New Westminster loses a beloved and iconic building, the Canada Games Pool. But first, we get into some of the new Census 2021 data. Well, Canada's population is on the rise at nearly 37 million. And the immigration, not birth rate, is what accounted for nearly 80% of that increase. Here to talk 2021 census data is Laurent Martel, a spokesperson for Statistics Canada. Good morning, Laurent. Good morning, Raji. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. Let's talk census highlights, uh, beginning with what is the most striking thing about the data collected about Canadians? Well, I think uh, you've said it uh, earlier. I mean, uh, Canada is showing a, a very strong population growth over the last five years, so that's really interesting. Uh, fastest growth among G7 countries, and that's despite the pandemic that we've all uh, experienced in, the, in 2020. So that's really a highlight of the census. The other one I would, uh, I would say is the fact that for the first time since the 1940s, actually, so that's a pretty long time ago, the population of the Maritimes in the east of the eastern part of the country has uh, shown a higher population growth than the population in the prairies. And that hasn't been seen for a long time. Since the 1940s. Wow, that's incredible. Yes. So demographics changes in Canada over the last five years. It's not, it's not just the same as, uh, as, as, as in the last 25 years. There's been uh, quite a bit of changes. And was the Maritimes expected to grow in that way? Well, uh, we had a higher immigration. They benefited from a higher immigration over the last five years. So that's definitely one of the explanations. BC is in the same position, by the way. And the Maritimes also shown a, a strong population growth due to, you know, people moving within Canada. So uh, much more people went to the Maritimes than in previous periods, uh, like in between 2011 and 2016. You know, so the uh, in what we call internal migration, migration within Canada, shifted quite dramatically over the last five years. And the Maritime has been a big winner, including as well BC. Yes. What was noticeable about BC for you? Well, BC, first time in the census that the population is above the 5 million mark, so I would say congratulations. <laughs> uh, that's really uh, interesting. And uh, BC was actually the only province uh, located west of the country to show a higher population growth than the national average. So uh, there was quite a quite an interesting story with BC. Yes, and, uh, you know, people in B.C. don't want B.C. to become too popular because uh, we don't have enough housing and what housing remains is extremely uh, expensive, unattainable. Um, and, and where was the growth seen in B.C.? Well, the growth was mostly located, uh, like in other parts of the country, mostly uh, located in, in, in urban areas. And that won't be a surprise to many, uh, many, uh, many people. Uh, Immigrants, uh, the growth right now is really related to immigration, uh, much more than, as you said earlier, to uh, our birth rate. So uh, immigrants are choosing to settle more into big cities. And so that's why the growth is located much more concentrated in in urban cities compared to the rural areas. The rural areas in B.C. have grown over the last five years, but just just slightly 0.5% over five years. That's not a big growth. Uh, the growth was much higher in, um, in, in, in urban areas. As an, ex- an example, Kelowna, for example, 
that was 14% of growth. So it's uh, three times the natural average. Quite impressive. Wow. What else did you see that was exceptional in BC? Well, uh, BC, it was, there's, there's, a, there's a few interesting stories. A uh, place like Squamish, for example, which, are, which is located north of Vancouver, uh, showed a, a very strong population growth over the last five years. It was above 20%, so that's four times the national average. So uh, there were some, 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 some specific uh, areas within BC that have shown a very strong population growth. And opposite to that, some other places, more rural areas uh, or remote uh, places, shown a decline in population. I'm thinking here, for example, of Dawson Creek, uh, where the population decreased over the last five years. Okay, Laurent, earlier you had mentioned where Canada fares among the G7, uh, where the other countries' growth trends down and ours went up because of immigration. Um, yeah. Did we get a sense of where that immigration is from? Yes, the, the places like, uh, well, countries like the Philippines and mostly India in the last five years, were big suppliers of our immigra- uh, immigration. So uh, uh, it's, it's mostly Asian countries right now. Like, uh, again, India was number one, the Philippines, I think, number two, and China, number three. So those uh, are the countries where we go get the most immigrants from. Now, some people will hear that and they'll say, wonderful, because we need our population to grow. Others will say, uh, you know that they don't want immigrants here. And that's uh, some of what we've been hearing of from extreme pockets of uh, extreme right. And what Mm -hmm. do we know about what immigration does for the country? Well, uh, everybody will, will, will know that uh, there's, there's some, definitely some labor shortages uh, in the country right now on the labor market. So for sure, immigration uh, helps uh, to that regard. So that's definitely one reason why uh, Canada is, is choosing to have a high uh, immigration. Uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not something new. We've, we had the high immigration for at least now 25 years, uh, actually, uh, starting back in the early 1990s. And that's why, actually, our, our growth rate, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's so high right now. Immigration and strong population growth, we do have challenges. I'm thinking here about infrastructure needs. Uh, when you have uh, located places with a strong population growth, you know, you definitely need to build roads, you need to deliver emergency services, you need to plan accordingly. So, you're right, there's challenges associated with a strong population growth, but there's also a lot of benefits, including on the labor market. In the labor market. And what about aging populations? Yeah, that story is interesting too. I mean, uh, we all know that uh, the Canadian population is aging and it is aging fast because we have this very uh, strong baby boom generation that was born uh, after Second World War and they're now getting to senior years. So uh, right now there's, there's a lot of demographic shifts in the population. That story will be covered uh, with census data in April. Uh, the first release happened last Wednesday. It was about population growth. And now Statistics Canada will release uh, the population by age and, and gender, actually, and sex and birth as well. So we'll have all, all these stories coming up in next April for, for you. Laurent, I saw on the Statistics Canada website that you are the demography guy. Demographics is your thing. So <laughs> the, the census data must be like Christmas for you. Um, what, what has been uh, the most exciting aspect of the new data for you to think about uh, delving into with research and whatnot? 
Well, uh, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm actually the director of the Center for Demography at Statistics Canada. We're monitoring the population trends on a, actually on a quarterly basis as well, using demographic estimates, which are kind of filling the gaps in between censuses that are every five years in the country. Um, and I, I, I like to say this, this country is a nation of contrast. You know, when we're thinking about, about Canadian demographics, uh, one-size-fits-all policies are hard to achieve because there's so many differences when you're thinking about, for example, Nunavut up north and uh, growth in B.C. compares to uh, some other places like Newfoundland and Labrador, which have shown a negative rate of growth over the last five years. So in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, there was a population decline over there. And there's other places where you have strong increases of the population. So, you know, there's all sorts of needs. And for a demographer like me, it's fascinating to see how, how different regions of the country uh, are and uh, what are their, their, their specific needs associated with, with, with their demographic trends. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Laurent. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much. My pleasure. The first thing when people think about Vancouver is often the astronomical price of living here. While our expensive housing prices are not going anywhere, data from RBC shows that Toronto has now overtaken Vancouver as the most expensive housing market in Canada. Here to talk about this is Brian Doucette. He's the Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion at the School of Planning, University of Waterloo. Welcome to the program, Brian. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Well, Brian, the most expensive housing prices is not a, a crown that any city is too happy to wear. And now we're hearing that Toronto wears the crown, but it's not because Vancouver prices have gone down, but because Toronto's have climbed even higher. Is that correct? It seems to be the case. I mean, we've seen prices all across the country uh, in big cities and in smaller communities go uh, up considerably over the past year or two years. And that's part of a longer trend as well. Yeah. You just published an article in The Conversation in which you outlined some of the main problems that Toronto has and which uh, Vancouver also seems to share many of. How did these cities' housing prices become so high? Was it gradual or a sudden rise? That's a good question. And, you know, often this is framed in the context of we don't have enough supply um, and particularly, you know, private developers and home builders say we just need to build more and that will sort of fix the problem if we yeah. just increase supply. And what we're actually seeing from the latest census is that the supply of housing is keeping pace or in, in, in some cases even exceeding the uh, growth in, in households. So, it's a little bit more complicated than just saying we need to build, 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 which is what a recent uh, provincial task force in Ontario has, has talked about. We're not necessarily building the right kind of supply. And like in Vancouver, what we see in Toronto and other cities here in Ontario is a lot of very, very small units that are popular with investors. And so we have a lot of investors who are buying property. 25% of all home buyers in Ontario are investors who already own another property. That's up from 16% from a decade ago. So we have that issue. We don't also don't have things like rent control on new units and when a unit becomes vacant. So that raises the price of, of rental properties and it erodes the supply of existing affordable housing, particularly to people on, on low and moderate incomes. And, you know, the last big thing is we haven't, we've, we've built a lot of supply in recent years, but we've built very little affordable housing. And that, that means, you know, housing that is affordable below market rate with government support. We used to do a pretty good job of that in Canada. And for the last three decades or so, we really haven't. 
In another article, you lay out the contradiction that housing is both a human right and an investment, a profitable asset. What did you mean by that, Brian? Housing in in our country, in our society, in many countries, plays this dual and conflicting role, right? So on the one hand, it is a human right. It's shelter. Everybody needs a place to live. And it is that has been enshrined through the, the federal government and other, other entities say, yes, housing is a human right. But housing is also a commodity that is bought and sold for not for the purpose of, of living in, but for the purpose of making money, whether that be in the short term with flipping or whether that be in the long term of buying up a housing portfolio and then using that as a retirement, um, a sort of retirement nest egg. Mm. And it can't succeed at both. It can't be a shelter and a human right for everyone where everyone has safe, secure and affordable housing. And on the other hand, be this sort of commodity that's speculated on that some people make a lot of money on. Um, it, it really can't succeed at both. And so until we grapple with this contradiction of what is the purpose of housing, and it's not to say we can only have one or only have the other, but maybe we need to have policies that shift the pendulum a little bit away from the, the speculation and the investment side to really enshrining that idea of housing as a human right. You say that supply has been largely left to market forces and developers. What's the problem with that model? Well, it builds what's most profitable to build. And if you have a context like we do here in Ontario, and I'm sure it's very similar numbers in BC, in Ontario, as I said, a quarter of all the people buying homes are investors and they already own other properties. So A, that increases the demand for housing, but B, that also shapes the supply. So where I live here in in Kitchener, we have a lot of new condo units going up with very small units. Same in Toronto, probably same in Vancouver. Oh, and these yes. are really popular, really popular with investors. They're not necessarily the kind of supply that we need. Uh, so we, we, you know, they're not affordable housing units for people on low and moderate incomes, and they're not units large enough for families on a range of incomes. And so, you know, the private sector developers have a role to play, but I think we need to have a policies that help to shape the kind of development that's built, right? So it's not just left to what is most profitable because there's a lot of things that are profitable to build. And if we shifted the, the, what gets built to more, more towards residential need uh, within our communities, we may get the kinds of housing that, the, the kinds of market rate housing that communities need. The second thing to acknowledge, and we often forget this, is that private developers do not hold a monopoly on adding new supply. We're often told this, it's often framed as this, but there are many other entities. There are nonprofits, there are co-ops, there's government-funded housing in a range of options. I mean, there's some great examples in, in BC as well, yeah. uh, in Whistler, um, where you, know, you, you can be very creative with this. But we also need to acknowledge it's not just the private home builders that have a monopoly on what gets built. So in BC, provincially, we have seen some changes in policy there. Where would we see greatest impact on housing price in policy? That's a good question. And, you know, there's no one silver bullet that will solve everything. Um, So there's no one policy that if you implement it, boom, you magically make housing more, more affordable. I think what we need to get back in the business of doing is federal governments and provincial governments funding the construction of new 
non-market housing, whether that be co-ops, whether that be rent geared to income, whether that be a variety of different sort of um, schemes that, that, you know, even that are houses you can buy, but the supply, the, the price is sort of fixed to average incomes rather than the, the market. There's all sorts of ways to be creative, but we need to get back into the business of the, the levels of government have the most resources actually funding the construction of new housing. I think that would make the biggest impact for people on lower and, and moderate incomes. But with that question, we also have to ask, you know, whose crisis is this? Because there's multiple iterations of, the house, of a housing crisis at the moment. So there are low-income households who've been in a crisis for decades or generations or centuries, right? They've only known on, uh, you know, unaffordable shelter. There's also this large segment of the middle class that are now struggling to afford uh, housing, people who never would have dreamed a decade ago that they'd be victims of a housing crisis. And we have to be a little bit careful in terms of thinking of solutions, you know, simply allowing more market rate housing to be built uh, without really questioning for whom, you know, that will help people. And I don't know what the price equivalents would be, but it, here, here in this part of uh, this part of Canada, you know, people who are priced out of the $1.5 million semi, yeah. right. Or the $2 million detached house, they might be able to buy a million dollar townhouse. Right? right. So that would help some people. But people who are on low and moderate incomes, people who are waiting for subsidized housing, people who are on minimum wage, there's very little evidence to indicate that that's going to make a tangible difference in the, the housing outcomes for, for those large sections of our society. Brian, what level of government would be most motivated to bring about that change? I think we need, first, of, first and foremost, I think we need a federal strategy of building new non-market housing uh, like we had in the 70s and 80s. Um, and there's some great examples. And there's some great examples in, you know, False Creek in Vancouver, St. Lawrence in Toronto that were built with money from provincial and, and federal governments. I think we need a national strategy to, um, you know, to build the kind of housing that the market is unwilling and unable to build because there's a lot of that. Yeah. There's a lot of demand that doesn't get met by market forces. There's some, and again, there's a role for, for a de- private developer to play. But if we're serious about this, we need to not just fund kind of helping people give them a subsidy for their rent. We need to fund the construction of the kinds of housing that communities need, and particularly the kinds of housing that um, you know, people on more low or moderate incomes within our communities need, because the market isn't, isn't, uh, isn't doing that. Interesting. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much for your time today. Not a problem. My pleasure. Now, in Alberta, there has been a lot of mounting pressure to lift restrictions, and Premier Jason Kenney has himself said enough is enough, it's time to get back to normal, and Alberta has lifted mask restrictions, including in schools, which is a point of contention for a lot of people. Joining me on the line is Dr. Brian Conway. He's a medical director and infectious diseases specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Brian Conway. Oh, yeah, good, Brian. It's fine. Good morning, <laughs> I don't want to... You worked hard to get that doctor title. I'm not <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> okay, I gotta... I'm just gonna get right down to it with you. Dr. Conway, Brian, what do you think about lifting mask restrictions in schools? Well, I think it's probably far too soon uh, to do that. 
And you quoted uh, Jason Kenney from Alberta. It's interesting when you saw Scott Moe talk about lifting all sorts of restrictions. Dr. Shahab, the uh, chief public health officer, the Bonnie Henry of Saskatchewan, sort of uh, without contradicting his premier, said, you know what, it's still COVID, let's be careful. Okay, now I know you have spoken about politics being, uh, we need to look at politics separately from public health. Uh, in BC now, there's mounting pressure about lifting restrictions, including around masks at school. When should we look to lift mask restrictions strictly from a public health perspective? What do we need to know before we do that? Well, practically speaking, it uh, won't happen until the next school year. Dr. Henry has laid out a path that will lead us to a gentle summer. She has told us that this coming week, when she talks about lifting restrictions, it will be important, it will be significant, but it will be gradual. It will be doing more things with more people in more places, but not everything. This is not normal. This is still COVID. So in terms of masks in schools and masks in many indoor places, it'll be gradual towards the summer for students will be next year. Brian, I've heard so many parents of littles say, oh, my, my kid had COVID and, and didn't even have any symptoms. If they don't have symptoms, then why are we bothering with the masks in their classrooms? Your child was lucky, and that's an amazing thing that they didn't have symptoms. I'm very happy for them. They can spread it to others who are vulnerable. We're seeing older adults, even those that are triply vaxxed, who are getting COVID and getting sick and getting hospitalized. It may be that they got the infection from someone who is asymptomatic, perhaps a child. We have to put everything in context. It's still COVID world. And Brian, we're also still hearing that many children are not wearing the masks properly and that they're not able to distance in the classrooms. What does the mask uh, do in a practical way in the classroom setting? It protects the person from being exposed to infected aerosols. And it protects others around who may be susceptible to infection, who are not yet vaccinated. Half our kids between 5 and 11 are not yet vaccinated. Uh, It protects them from getting infected. It's an extra layer of protection. I think that everyone who's told me that they couldn't wear a mask, when I really explored it, there was some some little practical trick, some, some, some tool that I could provide them that made the mask wearable. And that's certainly a discussion that that you need to have with someone who just comes out and says, I'd love to wear a mask, but I can't. And Brian, we've since seen this uh, debunked by psychologists, but Premier Kenny brought it up saying that uh, seeing facial expressions of teachers and classmates, whether they're animated or joyful, is a a crucial part of the mental health uh, impact on children. And that being one of the guiding reasons that they would get rid of masks in school. What do you have to say about, about that? Well, it's reasonable to bring up issues and to have a a good discussion around issues that we consider significant. However, when they have been explored, when they have been debunked, we cannot debate falsehoods anymore. And that's really one thing that we potentially did uh, less well than we could have in COVID world. We've accepted the fact that uh, COVID vaccines may reduce fertility. They don't. That COVID vaccines cause facial paralysis. They don't. And this is really up there along with them and you need to move on. And you mentioned also that we're only at about 50% uh, of a rate of vaccination amongst kids uh, in the younger group, 5 to 11. What is it that you're hearing from 
from parents of those children about why they still remain hesitant. Many of them vaccinated themselves, but their children are not. You're absolutely right. Two things. One is it's harder to make a decision for someone else, especially if it's your child, than it is for yourself. Second, they have significant questions to ask and they have nowhere to ask them. So they're just putting it off. And what would you like those parents to know about vaccinating their young children? It's an important part of the societal response to COVID. These vaccines in that age group are safe. They are effective. They are necessary. They do not have any long-term side effects that we have yet identified, and it is highly unlikely that, they're, that they will be. This is one of the most studied vaccines in the history of vaccines. Uh, please go find a healthcare provider to whom you can ask the question, someone you trust that will get you to make a decision that's comfortable for you and will help your child be part of the solution. Brian, there are some families of young children who are going, are young children still have not had COVID? Should we treat this like a chicken pox thing and, and look forward to them getting COVID? What do you have to say to that? Well, they could transmit it, as we were just saying, to people who are vulnerable and could die from it. And there is a risk that we have not yet quantified completely of long COVID. And if a five-year-old, six-year-old were to get long COVID, this would go on for decades. Likely they would, they would get through it with few, if any, symptoms, but there are risks, and this is certainly not something I would recommend. Brian Conway, Dr. Brian Conway, thank you so much for your time this morning. I know you keep repeating all of this information, but it's so important that we do get it out to people that they're hearing accurate information from the experts themselves. I'm always pleased to be with you, and discussion, dialogue, is part of how we're going to deal with COVID. So let's uh, do it again at some point. Thanks so much. Thank you. The Canada Games Pool has been a landmark in New Westminster for 48 years. It was built in 1973 for the Canada Summer Games, and the municipal government made the decision last fall to permanently close the doors. And that was after a leak was found in the pool tank. It was deemed too expensive to try and fix. And yesterday, the public was allowed to walk through the pool one last time. Joining us to talk about this iconic venue is the Director of Parks and Recreation for the City of New Westminster, Dean Gibson. Good morning, Dean. Hi, good morning, Raji. And how are you feeling about closing the Canada Games Pool? Well, it's uh, certainly bittersweet. We hadn't planned to be in this position. We have been uh, on a course uh, to replace the Canada Games Pool with the new Tumasout Aquatic and Community Centre in late 2023. And uh, the pool simply, as one person said to me yesterday in our farewell event, they said uh, she was getting tired and was ready to go and just uh, didn't have any more life to give. So wow. uh, we the we had a great turnout at our farewell event yesterday and the the sentiments and the, the heartfelt appreciation expressed by residents from all over the Lower Mainland uh, kind of actually left, left me more with a, a warmer feeling about it and some of the, uh, the, the, the more negative aspects of needing to close early just have uh, faded into the background. Oh, that's nice. Now, you don't often hear about a send-off for a municipal building. Why has this pool been so special to people there? Yeah, well, that's the, I guess, the the, the magic that is Canada Games Pool in, in the region. And it 
it really has its origins back when the pool first uh, was constructed in the early 1970s and subsequently opened for the Canada Summer Games in 1973, when at that particular time, uh, you need to remember that there were very, very few large aquatic facilities in the region, and quite frankly, very few indoor pools at that, uh, at that particular time. 50-meter long course pools uh, existed out at UBC at the old Empire Pool, which right. was, of course, an outdoor facility. Yeah. Uh, there was the, the Vancouver Aquatic Centre, which was serving you know, residents in, uh, in Vancouver proper. But once you got outside of the city of Vancouver, there were very few uh, options and opportunities. And Canada Games Pool came along at just the right time and uh, has touched the lives of people from Burnaby to Maple Ridge to, uh, to parts of Surrey for... Uh, for for many, many decades after that. So uh, it was, uh, and right up until its last day of closing, very much a regional draw that New Westminster was happy to share with with everybody in the the particular area. And that opportunity for those special experiences at the pool, which I've been characterizing as uh, swimming pools in general and Canada Games in particular, was that place of, of many firsts. Yeah, the, the the first time a family with their their young young child might have learned how to swim. Yes, might have been the first first time a teenager had a chance to jump off a you know a five or a seven meter tower into a body of water, or the yeah. or the first time somebody <laughs> went down uh, an indoor water slide, which yeah. again was uh, was unique in its time. So it was uh, meaningful to a lot of people in different ways, and uh, we we've we have known that over the life of the pool, and so being able to give a proper uh, farewell to the facility seemed like uh, just the right thing to do. And we had yesterday over 700 people come to our event and uh, every one of them had special stories to tell. And Dean, tell us about the architecture of the Canada Games Pool and what made it unique. Well, it was uh, in its day, uh, it was a wood structure, uh, a very large uh, A-frame that was you know, at its peak in uh, well in excess of 10 meters because it needed to uh, accommodate the 10-meter diving tower itself. Had actually the main pool tank was 65 meters long, so 50 meters for long course swimming, and then the uh, the remaining 15 meters, which would have been used for sort of the warm-ups and warm-down in the pool. And that was the competitive component as the, the facility opened in the day. And then uh, over the years, this, uh, the city of New Westminster, through the Parks and Recreation Department, adapted and retrofitted the facility by bringing in features such as the water slide and hot tubs and a, a small uh, teach pool because pool water for length swimming is usually kept a little cooler than most people would appreciate. So we had this smaller taut area where we had more temperate water for, uh, for younger kids. Uh, we put in you know, saunas back in, in the day that were just, again, unheard of in, in public facilities. And, uh, and it's, uh, we were one of the early adopters to have uh, family change rooms, actually, long before they become, uh, oh. became commonplace. So uh, lots of opportunities for, for first and, u- and unique programming that have really helped to shape uh, the, uh, the architecture, the design of modern uh, aquatic facilities that we now see shared across many municipalities throughout the region. So kind of like a pioneer too. Absolutely, absolutely. And so we know that the building will be replaced, the Canada Games Pool will be replaced by an aquatic community centre. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's uh, a wonderful facility that we've been making plans for 
uh, for the well, <laughs> the better part of half of my career, but we've been doing it in, in earnest uh, for the last uh, two to three years, uh, planning for the facility that will be called the Tumasout Aquatic and Community Centre, and it's intended to uh, replace the Canada Games Pool and the adjacent facility uh, uh, community centre called the Centennial Community Centre. So this will now bring all of those functions under one roof. Uh, the pool's under construction as we speak, uh, located uh, just a stone's throw away from the Canada Games Pool on the on the same site. Uh, and that facility will feature, again, all the, the things that the community has loved about the, uh, the former Canada Games Pool, um, as well as community centre spaces, in, including multi-purpose rooms, um, gymnasiums. There's going to be a, a dedicated childcare integrated into the facility as well. And uh, one of the things that we've learned, uh, particularly in the operation of the pool and the community centre in the past, is to have uh, very generous spaces for just social gatherings. And we use the term a, a community living room uh, feel that the, the lobby area of the facility will have. So that, uh, as I said, that project's been under construction uh, since earlier last year, and uh, we expect to be opening in late 2023. Okay, and I'm sure that time will be upon us uh, sooner than we think. Thank you so much, Dean. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.